Christina Desiree Berg, and welcome to the 34th. Now I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said Tuesday the Biden administration is preparing alternatives in case the U.S. fails in its efforts to revive the 2015 Iran nuclear deal that Trump withdrew the U.S. from. Indirect negotiations between the United States and Iran are underway in Vienna after a five-month break in efforts to revise the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. On Tuesday, the chief of Iran's a civilian program insisted Iran will refuse to allow UN inspectors to access a sensitive centrifuge assembly plant. Last week, CIA Director William Burns said he's concerned about Iran's nuclear program during an interview with The Wall Street Journal. Based on the, the results of the new round of nuclear negotiations, you know, with the so-called P5 plus one, the international partners, um, and the Iranians, um, you know, the Iranians have, are not taking the negotiation seriously at this point. It was a pretty discouraging result then. You have the reality of, of you know, the Iranians essentially dragging their feet on the nuclear negotiations, and at the same time, as you pointed out, Jerry, making steady advances uh, in their nuclear program, particularly enrichment to 60 percent now as well. In recent days, Israeli officials have been urging the United States to take military action against Iran, suggesting the U.S. should either directly strike Iran or attack an Iranian base in Yemen. Israel insists that, regardless of the outcome of the nuclear talks in Vienna, it reserves the right to attack Iran. This week on the podcast, I'm very excited to have Dr. Asal Rad with me, who is an expert in Middle Eastern history. We both went to UC Irvine, so I'm very excited to welcome a fellow anteater. And we're going to discuss some foreign policy aspects that are uh, intertwined with Middle Eastern history, obviously, and also where our foreign policy in general goes wrong or goes right with the United States. So welcome, Dr. Rod. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Right off the bat, I want to talk about Yemen, because I think this is a very dire situation. It doesn't get a lot of attention in the media. And when it does, I don't think um, there's a lot of deep conversation about what, what is actually going on there. So in your opinion, what is Yemen about? And also, where is the Biden administration going right or wrong in regards to how they're handling this foreign policy? Well, Yemen is a civil war. Uh, mm -hmm. So there's uh, the current conflict had roots in 2011 during another uprising. And so you have different factions vying for power in Yemen. Um, what happens is in 2015, Saudi Arabia uh, leads a coalition to support what it sees as the legitimate government in Yemen. And so, uh, and this is against the Houthi rebels um, mm -hmm. who had taken a good portion of land in Yemen at that time. Um, but the Saudi-led coalition uh, has really led a air bombardment um, and blockade of Yemen. And so there's two things happening. A, you have uh, just a lot of bombing uh, in what is already the poorest country in the Middle East. Um, and the additional blockade, what that means, when people use this, this term a lot, but what that means is basically nothing can get in Yemen without Saudi allowing it, um, which, of course, questions, you know, the... the Saudi's allowance to be able to do that, the mm -hmm. sovereignty of Yemen itself, um, and the fact that that is part of what is prohibiting 
uh, essential goods, foods, medicines, anything, anything from getting into right. the country. And so when we say um, Yemen is the world's worst humanitarian crisis, I mean, you have statistics uh, coming out saying something like a Yemeni child dies every 75 seconds. I mean, these are extraordinary numbers. And, and yet the U.S. role is quite interesting because it's really complicit in all of this, right? Mm -hmm. um, we were complicit by selling arms to Saudi Arabia. We're complicit by not using any of our uh, leverage with Saudi is supposed to be an ally. U using any of you know, the sort of leverage we have as allies um, to, to get Saudi to end the blockade, which is having massive humanitarian impact. All these things, of course, go against, you know, it's sort of ridiculous to use the turn of phrase rules of war because nobody uses them, including ourselves, yeah. of course. Um, but yeah, I mean, we love to talk about rules-based orders. We, uh, if, whether it's the Biden administration, the Trump administration, or the Obama before that, this, this catchphrase is constantly used. We talk about international law, and yet we are complicit in um, what amounts to war crimes and, and starving innocent people. Um, so what the Biden admin did specifically is early on, there was very early in the administration, there was a glimmer of hope. And that was based on the fact that Biden is a candidate came out very strong rhetorically about Saudi Arabia. It's like, I'm going to you know, hold uh, Saudi officials accountable, for instance, for the, uh, the murder of uh, an American journalist, Jamal Khashoggi. Mm -hmm. um, and that there was the announcement early in the administration that the U.S., and now coming a year later, you realize where that sort of key word in the phrase is, the U.S. will stop um, supporting offensive uh, offensive Saudi sort of strategies in Yemen. But of course, anything can be deemed defensive in this case, and therefore we're still arming Saudi Arabia. One uh, decision that the Biden administration made, uh, I believe it was in November, was to another, I think it was $650 million arms sale to Saudi Arabia. Um, this is in the middle of its continuing this bombing in Yemen. Um, and so a lot of Biden supporters, progressives, anti-war advocates, you know, from across the spectrum, we're quite disappointed in the fact that this is essentially what the Biden admin did. And when it did hold some Saudi officials accountable for um, the, the killing of Khashoggi, um, MBS was not among them. So, so there is, you know, there's the, the, the rhetoric we heard from Biden, the candidate, and there are the actions we're seeing as, as Biden, the president. Um, and one other thing, you know, it's it's interesting when you hear sort of uh, Beltway DC people talk about like political leverage or leverage. We always talk about it in in terms of the the power that we have, especially vis-a-vis -vis sanctions and war. And yet here you have an ally who is committing war mm -hmm. crimes. And not only are we not saying or doing anything, um, again, we're complicit in those crimes. I don't believe to this day the, the Biden administration has condemned any Saudi-led attacks. Um, and that, that is the problem, right? There is a problem when they're, they're quick to name the Houthis when there is, uh, when there's like right now, when you see this conflict, you'll see the State Department naming the Houthis and then attacks on Yemen are sort of dissolved into just Yemen is being attacked, but the culprit that is attacking them is not named because it is one of our allies. So, so there's that sort of double speak in the way that the administration is handling it. Yeah, and we have a history of doing exactly that. It seems to me it doesn't matter which party is control. Uh, they've all sort of placated Saudi Arabia and many of the horrible things that they've done. We have a history of this. 
Um, I wanted to bring up a recent headline from foreign policy because it was really mind numbing to me. Uh, basically, it said Yemen has become an Iranian proxy war against Israel, which seems entirely dubious to me. Why are they running this headline? Well, there's so that headline and that sort of story plays on um, what I argue are sort of pillars of U.S. foreign policy. And, and two of those pillars are to be anti-Iran and to be pro-Israel under any mm-hmm. circumstance. Right, right. And that's the fascinating part. So even when we are uh, negotiating a diplomatic deal with Iran, we still have to be, and by we, I mean, obviously, the U.S. Administ- different U.S. administrations and you know, the U.S. government, U.S. officials. So when U.S. officials are in the process of a diplomatic uh, negotiation with Iran, they still have to be clear to say, but Iran is bad. You know, that that constantly has to be said. Um, whereas when Israel undermines that very process of diplomacy, we say nothing really. We don't condemn Israel for anything that it does, whether it's, um, you know, I mean, Human Rights Watch came out with a report last year um, calling officially, and this is not the first human rights organization to do so, calling out Israel for apartheid and crimes against humanity. The, US, the Biden administration rejected that. So you have an administration that talks about centering human rights, but then it rejects what human rights activists and organizations the world over say, including Israeli human rights organizations oh, like absolutely. the Pesalem. Yeah. So the idea of a headline like that is to sort of, in, in my view, partially is to distract from the issue at hand. I mean, it's not to say that Iran has no role in what's happening in Yemen, it certainly does. Um, and it's not to say that Israel does not have uh, a stake in what's going on. I mean, the entire region is always sort of pulled into uh, anything that's happening to create instability. But at the same time, that is certainly not the central issue. The central issue in Yemen is a civil war. And the issue that concerns the United States most directly is our role in you know, this, the Saudi-led coalition continuing that war. Um, so it's, it's interesting the way that something like that is, is phrased because it's supposed to play on these notions that are, that are very familiar to an American audience, which is, oh, this is, so the issue in Yemen is Iran and they're doing something against Israel. That's not the issue in Yemen. And that really takes away from understanding what's going on there and what we can do in order to mitigate the the consequences. I use that word, by the way, Antony Blinken used that same phrase, mitigate civilian harm. Of course, <laughs> we want to mitigate civilian harm, but then we sell but Does Anthony Blinken want to mitigate civil harm? I'm not convinced that he does. <laughs> it, I mean, policy-wise, so and, and there's that doublespeak again. There's the policy exactly. and then there's what we say. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. I'm not a fan of Blinken, um, to be quite frank. So, you know, my question is this, the obvious reason is that Saudi Arabia has oil, America needs oil, American business interests always come into play, always trump everything else. And then the um, dialogue is sort of framed around that. Is that all this is about? Or do you think there are other things going on? I think, I mean, there's certainly the the pragmatic reasons why we have the policies that we have. And prag- by pragmatic, I mean for the people who benefit from them, not pragmatic in, in a general sense or in a broad sense where people actually benefit, yeah. um, but people in power, uh, especially special interest groups, especially you know, if you're, like you said, you mentioned oil. Well, if um, you're in that industry, then yes, the, the flow of oil and energy is extremely important. But I think there's another element that goes into the sort of policies that we have. I mean, partially they're just like, these are the policies we've had for a long time and just nobody questions it. I mean, Mm -hmm. you have 
and I, I don't know how to phrase this to not be, to not be, I don't know. I'm just going to say it. You have older gentlemen yeah. <laughs> running the country. Um, and so sure. they have the same sort of antiquated views that they had when they originally started. And that yeah. was, you know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. So mm -hmm. nothing in the mentality sort of changes. We just bull ahead and, and, and push the same policies over and over again. Um, and there's sort of a lack of political evolution in, in what mm -hmm. we do. And in doing so, we've made ourselves extremely weak. The, the U.S. is is clearly still the most powerful country in the world. And yet we are, sh we've shown our weaknesses so much. Um, and still there's this mentality that we can just bomb away every threat that yeah. exists or now sanction away every threat that exists. And that's, that's really not, that's really not how it works. We're going to have to understand um, this not so crazy notion of cooperation. And so that's mm -hmm. not just holding on to the same exact allies, no matter what they do. But what it shows, the cases of how we treat a country like Saudi Arabia and a country like Israel um, is not to distract from saying that there are other actors in the region that, are, that don't do problematic things. There certainly mm -hmm. are. But as long as we approach it with a double standard, we're never going to get anywhere. And that's so right. that's the problem. That's the root problem. Is I agree with you. The process. I agree with you. I mean, all of these issues are much more complex than what gets discussed on the super, superficial level, both by politicians and the media in the United States. And it's unfortunate. Um, I think a lot of the support for Israel is got nothing to do with the fact that it's a Jewish state and everything to do that it's geopolitically convenient. They want to have a military base there in the Middle East, and that's what Israel provides. Uh, nine times out of the 10, they don't care about Jewish people. They say they do because it makes it uh, sort of more palatable, but doesn't solve anything. And the fact is, is there is, it is an apartheid state. I don't think that's a controversial statement at this point. No, I mean, now, it shouldn't be, right? I yeah, mean, it, no, it shouldn't be at least. Yeah. Um, and now you've got settlements going into the Golan Heights under the Trump administration. I don't see Biden stopping that. Uh, the Golan Heights, for folks that don't know this, this is no longer uh, the... Uh, West Bank or occupied Palestine. This is Syria. So I, I mean, where does this end? Uh, you know, there's the way that we handle these situations to me is, is such a clear double standard. And you, and you mm -hmm. brought up, you know, it's not, it's more about the geopolitics than it is about say a religious affinity or anything like that. I think it's both. I think there is an ideological way of looking at these things. And whereas we frame our policies as being logical, they're not. They're actually quite irrational. Um, it's ironic that we talk about sort of fanaticism in other places in the world. Our foreign policy is fanatic. It's not. It's not based on what is uh, what will help the U.S. national interest. What will be to the interest of global security, um, stability in the region. None of those things are actually taken into account. And one very simple example, and this is under the Biden administration, is in April of last year, uh, the Biden admin finally wanted to resume negotiations with Iran. They were sort of slow in, in trying to return to the um, Iran deal, which is part of why where we are right now with Iran. Right, right. It was that original misstep. But soon after, um, there was an attack by Israel, which I think just recently, like a, a few months ago, there was uh, Israel basically sort of like admitted to the fact that they had a role in the attack. There was an attack on a, a nuclear facility in Iran. And Iran's reaction to that attack was to um, increase its uh, uranium enrichment to 60%. And this was fascinating. 
the State Department, Antony Blinken, um, didn't condemn the attack. It condemned Iran yeah. for reacting to an attack by increasing its uranium enrichment. Um, the same thing happened under the Trump administration previously in November um, of 2020. Uh, an Iranian scientist was assassinated by Israel. Right. Again, no one condemned Israel. There was no condemnation of Israel's actual actions, which are completely illegal um, mm -hmm. in terms of anything that we deem international law. Um, and again, Iran reacted uh, by passing a bill saying that they would have to, you know, increase their, expand their nuclear program. So on these occasions, what we do is condemn Iran and pretend like they're just acting out of nowhere. Yeah. There's no context given to what they are reacting to. And so we just paint this as like a fanatic group of people who are just, we're going to enrich more uranium, when right, in fact, right. that was the state that abided by the nuclear deal. It was the United States that quit the deal and left, uh, imposed sanctions, um, imposed even greater sanctions in a pandemic, despite international calls to ease sanctions because of the COVID-19 global crisis. And you, there's no condemnation of Israel whatsoever. Um, one very simple way of, and I say simple because most of the states in the region agree to this, um, is to, if we're actually concerned about nuclear proliferation and uh, nuclear weapons anywhere in the world, or specifically the Middle East, is to create a nuclear-free zone in the Middle East. Iran would agree to this. They've Multiple states have already um, shown their uh, sort of support for this idea, two states rejected, Israel and the United States. Yeah. Why? We won't even acknowledge that Israel actually possesses nuclear weapons. That's right. They are, they are already a nuclear power. I don't know if folks realize that. Uh, yeah, there's definitely a double standard at play here, don't. and it's unfortunate. Well, I don't want to interrupt you, but I want to say, I'm like, they literally do not realize that. There was a, a survey by Brookings Institute last year where Americans, part of the, the survey was asking Americans um, about if, if Iran possesses, if they think Iran possesses nuclear weapons, and they also asked if they think Israel possesses nuclear weapons. 60% um, said that be they believe Iran possesses nuclear weapons when it does not. 51% said they believe Israel possesses nuclear weapons when it does. So wow. we're not just, I mean, the when you have sort of politicians and media who use this kind of rhetoric, it is it is getting to the American populace. You cannot blame the American populace for not having accurate information. They are not right. being given accurate information. That's right. And that's and why- that's by design. They don't know it. That's by design. You know, I go back to thinking of historically um, the case of Iran. I don't know how many Americans know that we overturned a democratically elected government because they were going to nationalize oil and then gave- what a good 20% of that business to American oil companies like that's part of our history. That's not a conspiracy theory. It's something that happened, but it doesn't get discussed. I mean, this stuff's been going on for decades. Yeah, I mean, it, it sometimes it very rarely gets discussed. I remember I think it was I mean, I don't think it was it was uh, Bernie Sanders who brought it up in one of the uh, Democratic debates. I just can't remember if it was 2020 or 2016, but he brought up the 1953 coup in Iran. Um, as, as a point of talking about our foreign policy. So we, you know, we, again, we use really like flowery, wonderful language when we want to talk about uh, aspirations towards democracy and human rights and international cooperation and order and all these things. But we constantly, constantly undermine all of those things across the board. 
-hmm. more so than any other country in the world. That is the most interesting part. I mean, um, we just had, we just celebrated MLK, uh, MLK's birthday this month. And uh, I shared a quote because I said, I'm like, this is the one every politician, every institution, every everyone will share something about MLK because they're such deep believers and they're so fond <laughs> of him, supposedly. But he is someone who said that the greatest purveyor of violence in the world is his own country, is the United States. Um, and so those are the parts that we never pay attention to. You know, we are because we are the most powerful country in the world. It didn't happen because we planted trees. It happened because we did certain things to ensure that power. Um, and in so doing, we undermine every value that we claim to espouse. Right. I can't disagree. Um, and speaking of which, speaking of Israel, um, I'm a big fan of Mondavice, and I know you had a piece in there a couple of months ago where you discussed this idea that um, I think it's about, it was called American, uh, America's commitment to Israel is more ideological than logical. So this is kind of an interesting concept, and I think it's true. Um, walk us through that piece and what motivated you writing it. So, and for folks that don't know, Mondavice is um, a couple of Jewish journalists, and they report exclusively on what's going on in Israel and Palestine. So if you want, if you're an American and you want to get actual real journalism on uh, what's happening there, uh, go to Mondavice, go to the blog. There are no holds barred truth tellers about what's happening, and it's really rare to find that in uh, U.S. journalism. But uh, I do want to talk about your piece, so walk us through it and what your motivating factors were for writing that. Well, I mean, I, I discussed a little bit earlier the the notion of the sort of like the ideological versus the logical, but um, specifically that piece, if I'm not mistaken, was uh, during the sort of May onslaught of violence um, in Gaza uh, by Israel. And the it was a press conference. I think it was Netanyahu with, at the time it was still Netanyahu mm -hmm. with, I believe it was Antony Blinken. I believe it was, Blinken yeah. was actually in Israel at the time. Um, because the US, you know, the, the Biden administration um, didn't condemn Israel, but they, uh, they sort of tried to step in and talk about you know, they, they brought the Palestinian side into the conversation, um, but of course, without actually condemning any of the actions that Israel took, uh, one of which was destroying a uh, a building with journalists inside yeah. of it, right? So again, mm. war crimes, destroying roads that lead to hospitals. And this is this is routine. And, you know, every every few Every couple of years, people, or not even a couple of years, every few months, somebody in the US will get some media attention because, oh, Gaza is being bombed again. And it's like, well, this is why they can't. And the question always, uh, the way that things are framed is, well, why can't they build things for themselves? Because we keep, because you keep destroying it. And I used we, and it wasn't a Freudian slip, it was because the United States gives money to Israel to do so. Right. Uh, I mean, immediately in the wake of a clearly asymmetrical attack that affected Palestinians, a great deal more, uh, the U.S. moved to give uh, Israel an extra $1 billion um, to, to aid its uh, Iron Dome. I mean, the, there is no balance in the way that we approach this conflict. Um, and the Biden administration has been, has, it's just continuity, pure continuity with the Trump administration. Nothing yeah. different about what the Biden admin has done. Yeah. I mean, in the world of foreign policy, it has not been it, it, no. There are some differences, and I, I will always emphasize that when there are differences, we should point them out, but there is more continuity than there is change. 
And, and that should be the story. Why is there more continuity than That's change? Right. For, for an administration that everybody, the media was so quick to constantly, constantly criticize. But when Biden takes the same actions, you don't see the same Nothing. level of criticism That's being right. bubbled at them. It's but in crazy that press conference, sorry, it's I just crazy. Wanted to, No, yeah. No, in that piece, what I talked about is in that press conference, as Israel is just murdering civilians in Gaza, um, Netanyahu quickly segues to a discussion of Iran, which is <laughs> completely irrelevant to why there is a press conference and why there is a discussion of anything. And that is by design, right? By arguing that um, Israel faces an existential threat because of Iran, it, it sort of is the way, and again, these two policies in the US are very intertwined. It becomes the thing that distracts from their own violations, human rights violations, uh, violation. I mean, Israel is constantly called a, a democracy, the only democracy in the Middle East. You cannot be a democracy and be an apartheid state. It's just I agree. Not, that's not a possibility. Yeah. If democracy is the notion of equal representation of citizens, they control the lives of millions of Palestinians without any representation or rights. That's right. That's just not a democracy. That doesn't make any sense. That's right. And they're further, they're tried into military law, not, not uh, the same laws that Israeli citizens are. There's so many things wrong with what's going on there that does not get reported on. Um, it's tragic because in no way does this help anybody. At some point, the roosters are going to come home to, ro come home to roost. I don't think Israel is a safe, safe place to be. You know, I have many, um, I have many friends here in the United States that were born there, that moved here. They don't want to stay in Israel because it's just gotten so severe. As far as the government is, um, you know, borderline neo-fascist at this point. Mm -hmm. You've got uh, a prime minister that self-identified at one time as as one of the Kahanaists, and people that don't know Kahana is, he's a neo-fascist that uh, his party Kosh was actually banned from um, being part of government because they were so extreme. One of their members had gone into a mosque and uh, murdered, you know, a couple dozen folks who were worshiping out of hatred. So there's a lot of problems there. They don't get discussed in the United States. And I don't think it continued ignoring of the government of this, whether, whether it's the Biden administration, whether it's Trump, whether it's Obama, whether it's Clinton, they've all held the same uh, viewpoint on this. Well, and the thing is, is, I mean, we can talk about, we can, the, the issue of, Palestinians is its own issue, right? If if we are yeah. in fact, uh, if we believe in any of the things that we say, then our role in that conflict is that, I mean, A, we, uh, the United States vetoes um, almost anything against Israel, even in that particular conflict under the Biden administration, there were several, I think there were three or four iterations of uh, the UN Security Council coming out with statements that the, the, the resolutions that the United States vetoed, right? So it essentially abuses its veto power to give mm -hmm. Israel complete impunity. Um, you had the Trump administration that sanctioned wanted to sanction the I, uh, ICC, the International Criminal Court, um, right. because it wants to investigate uh, war crimes committed by Israel. Um, and the Biden administration continued those. Uh, they right. did They did backtrack because there was a huge backlash. Then um, this is before May, uh, I think, Secretary of State Blinken had a, a tweet saying something about the Palestinian situation, which everybody reacted with, not everybody, but um, a lot of liberals, Democrats, progressives, people across um, that sort of political spectrum were taken aback by the fact that they were hearing the exact same language that they heard yeah. from the Trump administration. <laughs> 
Um, and so there's that, but there's also the fact that Israel undermines U.S. interests. When I think so, yeah. is participating in negotiations um, to resolve a diplomatic issue, to avert a potential crisis, a potential war, and Israel is undermining that directly, not indirectly, but directly undermining that, whether it's by attacking Iran, whether it, and, and trying to undermine the process of diplomacy, um, still the U.S. does nothing. We do nothing. We don't even we don't even verbally do anything. Even you know lip service that says, "Hey, we condemn this." Nothing. nothing. So yeah. there is. I don't know how you can describe that kind of like zealous thinking without saying that it's fanatic. It's what it is. It's just. Oh, if I agree. Someone has if any state has impunity where it can do no wrong, that's not an international order. That is not a rules based system. That is, there are everybody is has an exception to the rule that we want and everybody who's not on our, you know, friendly list, the rules only apply to them. And that's not how rules work at all. No, no, it's not how rules work. But, you know, part of that too, is that I think the ICC could, could make legitimate cases against the United States for war crimes as well. And I'm pretty sure that the United States, um, no matter which political parties in power realizes that. Ilhan Omar asked uh, Secretary of State Blinken uh, earlier this year, earlier last year, um, where do victims of U.S. and Israeli war crimes. She specified U.S. as well. Where do they seek justice? And his response was inside of those countries. And what has the U.S. done multiple times? We just had uh, an incident um, with a drone strike that killed mm-hmm. 10 Afghan civilians, I think seven of which were children. And right. what, what did the investigation show? Nobody will be punished for it. It was, you know, it's it awful. just happened. So we don't actually hold ourselves accountable. No, we don't. No, No, we don't. No state really does, right? Most states in the world do not hold themselves accountable, which is why we created international bodies, but we're above them. I find it fascinating fascinating that there's only two UN member states that voted against a resolution that would condemn glorifying Nazism. This seems like a no-brainer, right? Mm -hmm. United States and Ukraine. (laughs) No, like, which we're going to talk about in a second. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about sanctions. Uh, sanctions in general affect poor people the most, and they generally do little to deter a state. Yet here we use them time and time again, and we've seen the consequences of this, right? You know, Cuba is not the only state that suffers because of our sanctions. The poor people in Cuba and, and you know, Fidel Castro, how has that put him out of power? It has it. Um, And I do think that sanctions are a form of war. I don't think that they are separate from that. Like oftentimes you'll see the realist say like, well, sanctions aren't war. We'll use sanctions to deter from going to war. I I think it's a form of war. Um, What are your thoughts on that? Well, sanctions are not war for us. They're war on other people. That's the difference. The difference is, is we're not, we don't have to use the same means to do the same harm, but we are doing the same harm. Yeah. I mean, the the way that sanctions affect targeted countries and the people in them, the civilians. And I mean, because the entire notion of a, a rules of war is to, again, to, to take from Anthony Blinken, uh, mitigate the harm to civilians. Right. We're trying to not harm civilians. Civilian targets are are not allowed. You are not allowed to do certain things um, that would, in fact, that knowingly would harm civilians. And sanctions do exactly that. 
Um, we always use phrases like there are humanitarian exemptions. Iran is a case for that. Iran is the most sanctioned country in the world. The US has by far more sanctions on Iran than, the other, than any other country. Um, in fact, there are certain like financial entities in Iran that are not that are double and triple sanctioned. If that even makes sense, consider that. Yeah, no, right? It's like, <laughs> oh, the the central bank of Iran is sanctioned twice under different designations. So it, that is clearly there are political motivations that do that. Um, but when they say there are humanitarian exemptions, on paper there are, but that's not what actually translates on the ground. Financial institutions are so scared to run afoul uh, U.S. sanctions that they won't participate in even transactions that are for humanitarian goods. Now, this is something that President Biden said. I'm not saying it, he said it. Joe Biden in April of 2020, uh, this is at the beginning sort of like stages of the pandemic still, mm -hmm. wrote a statement or at least had a statement in his name that said that talked about how the Trump administration, specifically on Iran, should ease sanctions that are impeding humanitarian flows. He said in the statement that despite exemptions, there is, this is happening. So we know it. This administration knows now this is what's happening. None of those sanctions have been addressed. It called on the Trump administration now nearly two years ago to take immediate steps to address that issue and has yet to do so itself. And so again, it, it's great when, when you, know, you have a candidate who has all these great things to say, but then when they take power, they don't do any of those things. Yeah. Sanctions on Cuba, you brought up Cuba. Um, yeah. Last year there was, I think it was the 30, 29th or 30th consecutive year yeah. um, that the UN voted on uh, ending the embargo on Cuba. Two countries voted against it. Yeah. <laughs> guess, someone guess. United hmm. States and Israel. Israel. <laughs> so we taught i think it was something like 172 countries voted for it how is yeah. that an international order it's not how is it it's that the international that. community is apparently the united states and israel if they say no then that's it not going to happen veto power is you know the way the veto power has been brought into that is it's it's destroyed the democracy of the um of the organization in my opinion i don't know how because you can't get around it right and right. it's not just it's not just the United States that abuses this power. I'd say Russia does too. You know, France on occasion. So is it? It's the five countries that have veto power that can change anything with, boom, just like that. Absolutely, absolutely. And 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 so every country, to the extent that they have power, will certainly abuse that power. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. So I want to, you know, and I, I want to bring up actually uh, Title 42. This is the policy that the Trump administration started that's uh, responsible for separating kids at the border. And this week, the DOJ under the Biden administration is still defending this policy. He campaigned on ending this. And yet now here he is defending it. It's just one more example. Yeah, there's, unfortunately, there are a lot of examples of, yeah. um, of continuity between the Trump administration for the very policies that were criticized. Um, I mean, look at the the strikes in the airstrikes in Syria uh, yeah. that were earlier in 2021. You know, people immediately pulled up tweets from who? From Biden himself, from Kamala Harris, from members of his administration, who at the time argued and questioned the legality of those airstrikes. But of course, right. now, there's no question to whether or not no they are legal as they are carried on. out. 
Um, on, on immigration, yeah, I mean, some of the, I, I remember last year, some of the images that we were seeing at the border um, are terrible. And, and these, I think the thing that's very frustrating um, for those who, who actually supported the Biden campaign, maybe not initially, but once that was the only option <laughs> that was given to us, right, right. that campaign was supported by uh, an unprecedented number of Americans. I mean, we had a massive voter turnout. Mm -hmm. And what is extraordinarily frustrating is you have a Congress, a House that has a Democratic majority, a Senate that has Democratic majority power. Um, and of course, the White House is has a Democrat in the office. Yeah. And you still have and you still have this party coming out and saying the problem is the Republicans. Yeah, I know it's it's you can't do that. They always do. You can't. You can't say the the issue with why we're not getting anything done is Republican. But it's also why Democrats we go through this thing. Everything. Exactly. So now we're going to go into midterms, and the Democrats are going to lose seats because of the exact same things that you're discussing here. Um, and I also would say that the only reason Biden won was because Trump was so terrible. I think this is a mandate against Trump, not necessarily you know for Biden. Biden was the option, right? This might be so, an unpopular opinion. But I yeah. actually don't even think it was Trump himself versus Trump in a pandemic. Right. You, oh, I know. I think you're right, actually. I, that might be unpopular, but I do agree with you. The pandemic was what drove him uh, across the finish line of not going to be electable. Because I think if that pandemic hadn't happened, I think Trump might have won again. I mean, I certainly think it, it would have been a, a stronger possibility. Clearly, the pandemic, I mean, 2020 was framed entirely um, yeah. by COVID. And so going yeah. into an election, that was the that was the the central thing that everybody cared about. Yeah. And, you know, you know what the worst part is, is I don't think the Biden administration has any better or different response to COVID than Trump did. I mean, we still have uh, I, I've seen we numbers, have record numbers of deaths every day and he's yeah. like, let it rip. That's his policy. Yeah. And and the I think I, I there's an issue with not with treating political parties like they're your team. Right. Like we're not cheering on, we're not, exactly. we're not cheering on a basketball nice. team. Right. Um, it is the policy that matters, not who's doing it. Right. And it, it is so frustrating to see people who were so critical of Trump for certain policies to not have the same consistent criticism when Biden has those policies. Yeah, I agree. Um, to me, that that's what will create the sort of uh, disaffected voting population, because if if the answer that's constantly given is go vote and then people vote and it still doesn't work, then they start they to question um, the merit of that argument entirely. That's right. that's right. They tune out and you know, the platonomy wins either way. So here we are. Um, I want to talk about Ukraine next because this is a situation uh, that's building up right now. Um, and like Yemen, I don't think the conversation is being framed properly at all. Ukraine also started as a civil war, right? This started as a civil war. There was a coup in 2014. At the time, you had a president who had been elected who was pro-Russia. Um, and then you've got the neo-fascist, neo-nationalists that are not pro-Russia, they're pro-West. They came in uh, very violently, overthrew the government, set up shop. They've been in power ever since. Um, and now you've got in the East a group of uh, separatists that want to separate. They're Russian separatists. They're being aided by Russia. But I think part of 
the problem here is that once again, you see the United States completely not presenting the facts when they discuss Ukraine, right? It's just a proxy war against Russia. Russia's the bad guy. Russia's invading Ukraine. We must help Ukraine. And really, it's two groups of Ukrainians fighting each other. Um, and I think the other thing that doesn't get discussed by U.S. media that is really important is that when I say neo-fascist and neo-nationalist, this is absolutely not an exaggeration. Um, the Azov Battalion, which is probably the most well-known of the Ukrainian militias, is a neo-Nazi organization. They have now also spawned a movement in the state. And when I say state, I don't mean like the term that Americans would use to describe like the state of California. I mean, uh, as a nation, to be clear. Uh, so, you know, the Azov Battalion is one of many militias uh, that are part of, of now been actually um, taken into the army. So they're part of the uh, National Fighting Force. They're not even just a separate militia anymore, but they've spawned a movement that is very much far right, very much uh, Naziist, very much neo-fascist. So once again, you have America supporting a group that is absolutely... Uh, has ideals that are supposed to be very different from ours, right? Since when are we embracing neo-fascists and Nazis? Well, we are, folks. That's who we're arming in Ukraine. Um, and then I would like to mention, just as an aside, they've also been training Nazis from the United States in Ukraine, and they come back here to the United States. The most famous of those is Robert Rundo. He started an organization called the Rise Above Movement here in Huntington Beach. But I also framed um, some neo-Nazis at the White, White Lives Matters protest rally that they had there in Huntington Beach, and they had Azov Battalion tattoos. So they had clearly also been over in the Ukraine. All right. All of this is just to give background on the situation, because I don't think a lot of Americans have a handle on what's going on there. Um, so I'd like to get your uh, perspective on this. Uh, I know that Ukraine's not your area of expertise, but I think... You can at the very least discuss the hypocrisy of the United States in this uh, arena. Absolutely. And yeah, I mean, Ukraine is certainly not my area of expertise. And um, and so I don't want to, you know, talk about speak to things that I'm not totally aware of. I mean, in terms yeah. of it's interesting because when I when you mentioned the idea of hypocrisy, well, obviously, uh, the U.S. talking about sovereignty and illegal military invasions is laughable. Right. It's yeah. like. <laughs> where where is our military it's we're if we're in countries that did not invite us there then we invaded them um mm -hmm. and what's interesting is whereas let's compare the invasion of iraq by the united states to what's happening in ukraine and russia um and 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 i'm not arguing that an invasion of any country i mean the notion of sovereignty and i'll get into this later in terms of like the question that you phrased of course sovereignty borders all these things must be respected. It doesn't matter who it is. It doesn't matter if it's Russia. It doesn't matter if it's the US. It doesn't matter if it's China. It doesn't matter if it's England. It, that's the entire point of having an international yeah. system. But there is an irony of these things coming out of the US. The US invaded a country that exists on the other side of the planet. Uh, it shares no history, no culture, no language, uh, nothing. It just decided um, based on lies to invade a country because it served someone's purpose, right? The, the purpose of a lot of uh, defense contractors, the purpose of empire. It, it For purely imperial reasons, the US just invaded Iraq. Um, 
Russia and Ukraine share a very, very different history. Um, They are bordering countries. I mean, Ukraine as an independent nation state, I believe has only existed for about 30 years. Um, Historically, it was a part of Imperial Russia, historically in the past, then it was a part of the Soviet Union. So there's, it's a, and I don't say that again, I don't say that to say that there is um, a clear justification in any direction. I say it to say that it is a different kind of situation and is more complex. And so in order to talk about- yeah, it's, it's, it's much more complex than, than invasions that the U.S. has carried out. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you have these complex situations, what is, you know, what did sort of humanity come up with t- to figure out with how to deal with them? Internationalism, right? That was the whole concept of creating an international world order. Um, because you have to have a sort of objective body that deals with these situations, can understand their complexities, um, and, and sort of Give, give a rule of what would make sense. The problem with the US playing this role is that we do not do it. It makes it completely meaningless. If you do not apply, if you do not participate in those rules, trying to apply them to someone else is meaningless. And right. I say that because you have to understand, we have to understand how other states view us. This is not a defense of Russia, but if Russia is sitting there sort of laughing at the US for saying, really? Yeah. You can't invade countries. Who can blame them? Because this is right. what we do. So, you know, it's much more difficult to control the actions. And by difficult, I mean it's it's right. impossible to control the actions of another person, another country, another entity. It's hard to do that because we do not actually have authority over them. Whereas controlling your own actions is in your own power. Um, and so the, the argument that I would make in this situation is that in order for us to play this sort of international leader role, we have to first abide by those rules ourselves, and then we can try to have other states apply them. Um, and we don't do that. And you see the way that we, we deal with conflicts, the way that we say it, and the reason why we do it is completely different. Um, in, in certain situations, we support rebels. In other right, situations, right. we support the official state. You know, like we, we just support whatever is uh, to the like benefit of, of US empire. That is essentially at the end of the day, what we're doing. We support anything that supports US empire. And in, in that in moment this, too, because sometimes yeah. those people we arm end up, you know, 10 years later causing us problems like Al Qaeda. Yeah, absolutely. Because we're not, we, again, this is not like, we are not thinking about long-term consequences right. to actions. We sort of exist in this moment and we still have, you know, I, I said earlier how, um, U.S. foreign policy, why it doesn't seem to ever change. Um, and, and part of the reason why is because you have older people with older mentalities. One of those mentalities is the Cold War, right? We yeah. still have Cold War mentalities. still how we see um, the world sort of uh, organized in our own minds. And But what's happening now is, I mean, it's mind-boggling to me. I'm like, what is the plan of the Biden administration? Are, are we, are we going to go to war with everyone? Yeah. Everybody? China, well, I mean, he's Russia, like sent Iran. Over I, this week. So it's, you know, there's been a buildup. I know, you know, part of it too, obviously I didn't bring into the conversation, but part of it definitely is NATO. Uh, you know, NATO's had a buildup of states around the Russian border. So Russia's, you know, act, uh, reacting to that. I think that's part of the conversation. And obviously NATO, we're part of NATO, but he did send troops over this week. Um, I don't know what he's going to do with them, but they're there. Which again, in reverse, in reverse, we would think the same thing. If any country sent troops near our borders, mm-hmm. we would take issue with that. 
but for some reason we can be everywhere i mean the sun quite literally never sets on the u.s military that phrase used to be used for the british empire now it's the u.s military it's a military empire you know you have no intention of i love this catchphrase ending endless war i love it because i believe in it myself personally but i love how it's used um basically abused by people who are in positions of power i mean you say it was such a sort of mockery to to believe that withdrawing troops from afghanistan meant that the age of endless war is over and and that became the sort of theme of uh partially of the us media and the biden administration itself and it's like well if we've ended endless, endless war mm-hmm. why did we increase the military budget mm-hmm. right Right. You know, it's insane how much our uh, budget was increased. It was already insanely large. And now they gave the military more money. How much of this is tied, uh, in your opinion, to the military industrial complex? I, you know, not even just in the sense that Eisenhower talked about when he left office, I think it's grown into something much uh, larger now. And I do think uh, you have a situation where a lot of the private contractors, private security, et cetera, um, not just the developers of weapons, right, have a say in what happens in government. Um, and I think that's affiliated with the think tanks. You know, Anthony Blinken comes from a think tank where these are the guys that, you know, it's it's um, like almost like a revolving door that you would see with regulatory capture between like the SEC and the bankers, right? Except now it's all uh, military and security. Is that ultimately what's driving this? I mean, it, it, again, it certainly plays a, uh... A central role. I always say that there, in every situation, it's sort of like there are multiple factors that contribute to uh, something being the way that it is, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. In terms of like our our sort of um, ethos of militarism, um, that is certainly a significant factor in it. I would say that there are other factors as well. Some, honestly, some like historical and cultural factors as well, right? Like we're we have uh, in the U.S. Americans have sort of been driven to to feeling like war is okay. We're almost always at war of some kind or another. And and there's a certain kind of brainwashing that comes with that, right? Because there is an alternative, but we don't even, we can't even fathom that there is an alternative because we exist in this space in this manner in in such a way. Um, In terms of what you're talking about with the military industrial complex, I mean, that's, that's true across the board in how the US government operates. And, and one example, for instance, is this discussion about you know, whether or not um, members of the government should be able to hold stocks and profit from yeah. the stock market. I can't even believe this is a question. I can't either. The answer is obviously no, they're engaging in insider trading. I, they, are, know, it's interesting. they are regulating, they are <laughs> regulating systems yeah. that they profit from. That's right. That's, that is called corruption. There's no other word for it. If I describe that, because this actually does happen in other countries, right? I mean, it's so funny to hear uh, the US media talk about, for instance, corruption in a country like Iran. Right. There is corruption in a country like Iran. Of course there is. Of course, um, yeah. As is there in the United States, we just don't call it that. We don't call it, we call it free market capitalism. We call- <laughs> that's, not, that's not what's happening here. You have people who are charged with representing the what is the will and interest that's really funny you're right they do they literally call their corruption free market capitalism it's astonishing and in fact nancy pelosi her comments on uh so john ossoff of all people is supporting this idea of outlying stock uh, trades for city members of congress and i agree with this you're right it's corruption Nancy comes out and basically says no i don't support that i'm a capitalist we're a capitalist country it's like 
we're capitalists except for interestingly enough it's the remarkable. u.s military it's remarkable i mean the u.s military is a massive socialist enterprise yeah. if you want to if you want to think about it in those terms it's not private right it is it is every the the benefits that people in the military receive all of this has like the tax pay, socialism so we we have so I mean when you when the government bails out a bank, what is that? Socialism for the rich. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean these are these are such clear concepts, and that's why you know you you we're in such an important sort of historical inflection point in the U.S. I think, and we won't understand it obviously until decades from now when people study it. Then when they think about you know, the the factors that led to where we are now and sort of the decisions that we make and where we go, but there are things that we get so sort of stuck in talking about these surface politics constantly because mm -hmm. you know all we yeah. that's that's why we engage in it right that's why we just engage in constant hypocrisy is because we want to distract people from from these much much larger underlying issues um how climate will affect uh the entire world and the fact that we are not really doing anything to to address it um the fact that you know you're, we're we're facing mass wealth inequality on a scale that hasn't been seen for a hundred years. That's right. Uh, the middle class in the United States is is being decimated. Yeah. And and these are we're not even talking about we're considering we're considering like we're not at least considering right. Uh, it it seems like the rhetoric continues to be or it seems like the the idea continues to be financial punishments even in the case of Russia right. That's that's mostly what we're hearing. But of course. Right. War is unpredictable. This is one of the most frustrating parts about talking about war. What has historically sparked wars in many cases what is not what you would think would have sparked a war. Mm -hmm. You cannot contain it when you create those kinds of tensions. And a lot of the actions that we're taking are creating those tensions. And once mm -hmm. a war starts, it's a lot harder to you know, wrap it back up. Yeah. So, so we have so many domestic issues, and yet we're still focused on this notion of empire. And really to me, there comes a point where that decision has to be made. Either we are an empire and, and we'll die the same way every empire has done historically. No point in human history was there an empire that just stayed forever, clearly, right? And we will yeah. decline and crumble the way that everyone else did, or something will have to be changed where we address both the domestic issues in the country, which are a massive scale. Yeah. And then you know, actually embrace the ideas that we constantly talk about. I mean, if we did what we said, we'd be in a pretty good place. We just don't do right. it. We're just not doing it. Yeah, no, I mean, the income inequality is astonishing in the country right now. And the fact that they walked away from a $15 minimum wage is mind numbing to me because, I mean, here in Los Angeles, Orange County, you can't afford to pay rent on $15 an hour, let alone buy food and, you know, do all these things. And I, um, I find it wild that the Biden administration is basically saying they ch uh, they have child poverty when the metrics they're using are ridiculous to me. It's like $28,000 for a family of four. You're still in poverty if you live in California. So this is not this big oh, yeah. win that they're making it out to be. I mean, I feel like you would be in poverty living anywhere in the, in the country. Yeah. Just based yeah. on the amount of, you know, basic needs, right? Uh, exactly. When you think about healthcare premiums and, That's you know. Right. Or is anybody trying to send their children to school? I mean, um, the yeah. I, I, to be fair, I'm I'm I know that President Biden himself has been a supporter of the $15 minimum wage. But here's the issue: he doesn't call out Democrats. No, he doesn't get them in line. You're not getting anything passed. You're not getting anything done. That you even the things that you want to get done, you're not getting done. But you won't call out 
right. the people who are stopping it. You just keep blaming Republicans. And, and the right. problem with the strategy is that it fails, right? Because all anybody has to look at is, well, you know, no, Americans, look, Americans did what they were supposed to do. They voted in droves in the middle of a yeah. pandemic. People figured, organizers, I mean, the, this election was um, carried on the backs of organizers across this country. Mm-hmm. And what is, what do they, what was the benefit? What do they get from it? You won't even call out the people who are doing these things. Yeah. And no, so it's, 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 they'll even continue. I've seen people actually even defend Joe Manchin because they'll say they're angry that he's not getting in, in line, that he's, uh, you know, obviously blocking the agenda, et cetera. But then they'll also turn around and say, but he's the best we can get in West Virginia. And it's like, you can't, you can't have it both ways. And no, he's not the best you can get in West Virginia. There have been primary contenders that uh, were good candidates, but you know the DNC and the DCCC came in and supported Mansion time and time again. They knew who he was; they chose him. So that that lies at the feet of the Democratic Party, in my opinion. Yeah, and well, somehow, somehow, the when the Republicans have a majority, they get things done, and and the Democrats have no choice but to tell people to go vote because the problem is they have a majority, right. and then when the Republicans are a minority, they block everything from getting done. And then the Democratic Party still doesn't get anything done because they don't; they're not willing to do what it takes, right? If if um, I in the very least, I'd like to see Biden use the presidential uh, office as a bully pulpit. I mean, he's not even doing that. Like I I just can imagine that if Bernie Sanders was in that uh, uh, position, he would be doing exactly that, right? And I don't well, think you would that hope he would, that he would be calling. I mean, he's calling them out now. So you would right. hope that if he was in whatever position he was in, he would do the same thing. He would call them out in that circumstance as well. And that's, you know, again, I think it's the messaging is off when you're it, it's almost like voters are going to be blamed. Right. You're yeah. blame. Oh, of course they are. It's always the voters fault. That's their favorite game. Right. Wasn't there, there was a, I forgot who it was, but I think there was just um, a, like a democratic strategist who said something like the problem, it's not the, the problem isn't the Democrats, it's their supporters. <laughs> I forgot who it was. I can't remember his name. That is right. the stupidest thing I've ever heard. And yes, that was I the actual I statement. This is yeah, a strategist no, I I the democratic it. party <laughs> is to say, so on, so you have people like Hillary Clinton calling uh, <laughs> the, the democratic rivals deplorables. Yeah. And then you have actual and then you have strategists calling the actual democrats the problem not, that, not the politicians the that they elected I, it's 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 absolutely ludicrous but but this is the comedy that that we are in right now um and i think coming up in the midterms the democratic party is going to get a bloodbath i just don't see them holding on to seats with what's going on well that is the other issue for americans again in, in the sense that it's like we we exist in a in a space where because things have been a certain way for such a long time we assume yeah. that this is the only way it has to be and that's just not the case and and oftentimes we compare um, for instance, when it comes to like financial systems, we compare the US, people are like, oh, look at how they are in Finland or in Sweden or these other right. countries. And then that'll create a whole argument about how those countries are very different. So I always say, I'm like, okay, forget that. Compare the US to the US. Just compare the US uh, a few decades ago to the US today. That's we right. You have a middle it, class. You're right. I mean, compare the FDR you know, era with what we have now, and they're markedly different. I would say that we started an erosion that started uh, with the Powell memo. I would say, you know, I'm talking early 1970s. We started an erosion of the middle class, of workers' rights, of all of these things. And it's just been chipped away for decades now. And we're in this place because there's been no pushback to that from either party. 
they've all participated. Absolutely. And so that was the other thing I was trying to get to is like this idea that we are two party, this two party system. It's not really mm-hmm. a two party system. Other parties are allowed, but we are, you know, held hostage almost to yeah. these are the only choices you have where are there are other there are alternatives there are ways of you know create more take more candidates and um and actually allow for a space to see what do americans think rather than rather than basically the system we have now which is these are your only choices and if anybody right. runs uh, a third party then they get blamed right. for <laughs> ruining an election it's like well it's not it's not really an election if you only really allow two two people to run right. um, with any viable option of winning. So, but all of these things are ingrained in the belief that like these are realities that we just this is all that it is, and it's not. There's there's a lot of alternatives, and there's a lot of I think it's represent us as like one of the organizations that works um, specifically on uh, voting in this in the system in the way that it's set up. So there's a lot of great work that's being done, but we're sort of just we have to believe that we have the ability to, to change the system the way that it is, because from every aspect that you could possibly think of, it's, it's collapsing in a certain way. Right. And that's, and I think, Oh, I agree. Yeah. I mean, you're watching, it's like, we're watching in real time, a dying empire that that's what it is. And that's why it's like, this is the moment, this is, this is the critical moment of making a decision, which are we just going to die? Right. Are we just, are we dying on this hill? Is that what it is? Or we're dying on the hill of late stage capitalism. I mean, it's it's remarkable to me. If the capitalists want to save capitalism, there would be an easy way to do that. And that would be with addressing the income inequality to a certain extent. If people are getting by, if people were making $30 an hour base pay, like living wages, they wouldn't be railing against a system that's keeping them so poor, right? So yeah. that would allow these greedy guys at the top to really get away with a lot of stuff but they're so greedy they can't even see that yeah i mean it's it's uh, i th- you know there, what I'm was saying? A, there was a report that came out a few a couple of weeks ago that said i think world i think it was this was world billionaires so not just in the u.s although obviously the u.s has the most billionaires and the most wealth concentrated yeah. um but something like they had gained over five trillion dollars yeah. in in the duration of a pandemic, like a global, in the middle of a global health crisis, as millions of people have died, um, just so many consequences to it that go beyond the, the death toll of it, the, the psychological impact that people have had. I mean, I, I don't understand why we don't talk about this more. The homicide rate in the US, I think it was in 2020, went up close to 30%. Yeah. That, that's not, nobody was out anywhere. Everybody was home. So it's just like, why are we not discussing these these other impacts of the pandemic that aren't just about you know vaccine rollouts and, right. and you know the, the actual death tolls, which are central to it, of course, but there's all these other secondary issues. And yeah. while this is happening, they made over five trillion dollars. Yeah. People who are already billionaires. It's it's, it's grotesque. It really is. It's uh, it really so is. many so many levels of immoral things that are going on in our society that could be addressed, but neither party chooses uh, to do so because, you know, like Nancy Pelosi says, we're capitalists. They yeah. can't see another way. It's just so ridiculous to me though. You know what, FDR was a capitalist too, but at least he understood that there was a benefit to expanding consumers, right? If you have more money in the hands of a middle-class, that's gonna sustain capitalism, right? Cause they're spending money. I mean, our, our entire economic system's driven on consumption which is why we're having all these problems. Um, so I, the US government actually sanctions individuals in other countries on corruption. 
That's right. They're trying to do it in Ukraine right now, right? They're targeting um, four or five, I can't remember if it's four or five, uh, pro-Russia Ukrainians. Because, you know, I mean, this entire thing boils down to like who they've decided our enemies are. And it seems like it's still all entirely based on the Cold War and business interests that stem from that. I mean, the entire Cold War was about capitalism, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, to, uh, to ideological poles that were obviously opposed to each other. And it's interesting, so uh, NATO, since we talked about NATO, I mean, NATO was um, like created essentially in, in the wake of World War II and right. as a way of creating an alliance against uh, the potential of uh, an attack from Germany and at the time the Soviet Union. Um, and so in response to that, the Soviet Union created the Warsaw Pact. Right. Of course, that was dissolved in, I think it was like 1991 with the end of the Soviet Union. Um, but we still hold on to this side. Of it. <laughs> so we still see it the same right. way, you know, it's like, it doesn't, Which it didn't absurd. matter that it doesn't exist anymore. Russia is nothing like way. what the USSR was as far as power. I mean, it's just so ridiculous that they're still holding on to this. And also the irony just never, never escapes me that it really was ultimately the Russians that destroyed the Nazis. We were busy defending empire in North Africa for most of that period of the war till we came up there uh, to Europe. But but without Russia, we would not have defeated the, the Nazis. That's just a fact of the matter. And then immediately they turned Russia into the enemy. It was, I mean, it didn't have to be that way. And I yeah. don't think, um, and, and they, they, they chose to frame it, I think, this is just my opinion now, they chose to frame it as, as these two extreme poles, right? We have communism on one side and we have capitalism on the other. And they chose to frame it this way because it suited them to do so. When, when in reality, there's many, as you would know, there's many types of mixed economies that are beneficial. And I think that the United States platonomy was just very threatened by the idea of having more workers' rights. And in the United States, um, that's the form that communism was taking, right? It was about workers' rights. It was about more strikes. It was about gaining um, you know, better things. So it just, it just became extreme, right? This extreme argument about these two completely opposite ideologies, and that's just the way there is, you know? So I just feel like that sort of Cold War doctrine, um, ethos, argumentation, I think it's just mind-numbing that it's still going on in 2021. I don't think most younger generations buy into it, but the boomers certainly do. I mean, you see it with the way they discuss anything that has to do with Europe. It's framed in those uh, terms. And I mean, to a certain extent, I understand that because it's it's the way that they understood the world around them. But then that's, so that mm -hmm. becomes, you know, I always point out this for myself. I'm like, I um, was a teenager when 9-11 happened. Yeah. And so I was just starting undergrad. And when I, basically my, my political views, everything I thought was shaped by by that incredibly tragic incident and then everything that came thereafter um, because it was a watershed moment, not just for the United States, but for the entire world. Mm -hmm. So your experiences shape the way that you see things. But then mm -hmm. for this generation, for people who are not boomers, um, yeah, we see it differently. <laughs> we don't like wars. They don't seem yeah. to work out very well. Any, any of the times that we've engaged in them, um, the world has changed and so what I think younger generations are asking for is for us to change with it. Like yeah. We need to change with the world that is changing around us. And again, that's why I brought up the fact that we have older gentlemen always running the country. Yeah. So that change it's doesn't happen. <laughs> that's not everybody, by the way. I mean, I, to be fair, I say Bernie's the Bernie, yes, Bernie is an older gentleman, but um, with, 
but he's definitely the exception to the rule he understands the problems and that's why his uh, significant base of his supporters are young people that's right even if he is older himself his views his ideas reflect a different generation a different generation than his own so on that note what are you working on now anything important anything interesting that you want to share well, I actually just uh, finished and launched a report um, in my position at NIAC at the National Iranian American Council. Mm-hmm. Um, the report is called Othering Iran, How Dehumanization of Iranians Undermines Rights at Home. Mm-hmm. And the it's not too long, but um, essentially the crux of the report is to say that the sort of what we were talking about earlier, these the fanatic takes that we have when it comes to foreign policy. In the case of, one of the things that we don't really talk about in foreign policy, like racism in the United States is much more of a widespread debate and discussion than is racism in foreign policy. And how like that also is affecting our foreign policy decisions. And there are, you know, some surveys and studies that come out that say, um, not surprisingly, uh, when there's a correlation between Americans with racist attitudes and their um, uh, their like attitudes about, for instance, going to war with a country like Iran, right? right. With non-white countries. So the report basically looks at the sort of history of relations between the U.S. and Iran, the the demonized narrative that takes place in the United States that turns not just Iran, but its entire country, the entire nation and and its people by dehumanizing them into sort of a villainous caricature, right? It's just like, they're just always a villain, no matter what. And it really goes through that to say that that is part of what impacts um, our policies on Iran, which by far hurt Iranians in Iran more than anybody else, but also impact Americans of Iranian heritage, like myself, Um, something that we don't, like I said, we don't often talk about. So I think that would be a good plug if anybody would be interested in in reading the report. I hope that not only does it create understanding about specifically the case of Iran, but sort of opens up a debate about how prejudice and racism plays into our foreign policies as well. No, it absolutely does. Let me ask you this. Do you think that um, that's increased since the Trump administration versus something like a 9-11? What, what, what point in time do you think was more racist for uh, this type of behavior? So the thing with the Trump administration is I think it's a mistake to treat Donald Trump like some kind of anomaly. Um, yeah, because I, it's not. Okay, fair. Yeah. Right? Like he's just, he's actually... He's sort of like a logical culmination of the policies and things that we've done for for a very, very long time. And I think the problem with treating him like an anomaly is we don't try to cure the problem, right? We just say, okay, if we get rid of him, that's the problem. It's like, no, he's not the problem, actually. Um, He is just a sort of face uh, of a much larger issue. Now, that being said, leaders matter, right? Like uh, maybe um, the, the ideas that Trump had the way that he presented them appealed to a larger group of people or or at least sort of galvanized them to act, to vote, to, to, to act out violently or aggressively, to change the way that they speak. Um, so it, it, there's definitely a shift that you can see in something as simple as the way that people talk about sort of like politics and race and things like that during the Trump era. But again, I don't, I don't think that it is a result of Trump himself versus you know, a system that's been put in place that has created this result, right? And I think people are, tend to be more at each other's throats when they're dealing with mass inequality, when they, right. when they're, you know, I was, 
I, the reason I hated the deplorables comment by Hillary Clinton was because I don't think that we can just paint everyone with one brush. And what was interesting, I think, about Trump was that as much as as much negative attention as he got, as much negative press as he got, and as much as I mean, you know, there, there clearly there's a majority of Americans, arguably based on voting patterns and approval ratings, that um, do not agree with his worldview. There is still a significant amount that do, and Trump gained millions of votes yeah. between 2016 and 2020. He didn't That's lose right. votes. He I know, gained millions. Yeah, true. So we have to address, you know, what is the actual issue that is sort of giving power to someone to someone like him? And yeah, and I think it's it's a it's a positive feedback loop. On one hand, you have the system that creates someone like him, and on the other hand, you have someone like him who is like a particular personality and who for millions of people is charismatic for millions of people, whether or not I like him, you like him or anybody else does millions of people do in this country. And so he is representative of something within the country. Yeah. I often said that I don't think Trump is the disease. I think he's a symptom of the disease. I do agree that he is the inevitable outcome of so many things, so many things in this nation. Um, I want to uh, give you an opportunity to tell people where they can find you on your social media, Twitter, website, et cetera. Yeah, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Asalrad. Uh, so it's at A-S-S-A-L-R-A-D. Um, that is where I try to truncate everything we just talked about into two sentences. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, you can see visit the website of the organization I work for, NIAC. Uh, niacouncil.org. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This was a great conversation.